Hey everybody, uh, welcome back to Pochmansier. Sorry that this chapter was a couple weeks coming. I just got very caught up in my summertime gigs performing all the way down at Oregon Country Fair and all the way uh, up to Mission, British Columbia, my first show in Canada ever. So yeah, uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, yeah, uh, hopefully you're all still with me and uh, are excited to get another chapter. So yeah, here we go. Boschmansier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg, read by the author. Chapter 14, Music and Dancing. The day passes in fine fashion. The weather is agreeable, and the company more so. They stop at a pet shop and purchase some food for Slice, something Kells feels ridiculous calling the stray. Eleanor gives a litter box brief consideration. She asks the cat what it thinks and receives such a withering glare that she fancies she can hear it say, Are you serious? The litter box is passed over. Likewise, a collar is deemed inadvisable, though the cat does consent to a small animal sweater. Both humans seem to find this amusing to no end. Slice finds their humor confusing. The sweater is warm, and the coming days are cold. They drop the cat off at Kells's apartment, and after some consideration, prop open one of the bedroom windows to give it the freedom to come and go. The cat seems pleased, and soon lies down on the bed, eyes closed, doubtless feigning sleep. With Slice ensconced at home, they return to the cleaners and recover Eleanor's coat. This time they are met by a young clerk, pimple-faced, nose in a book. Though neither says anything, they are both disappointed both nursing secret hopes that the odd little woman would be there. Eleanor tries to ask about her, but the youth seems confused, holding out a hand for her ticket and going to find the coat for her. All she gets is a shake of the head as her coat is returned, the youth seeming disapproving of the style. When she tries to pay for the cleaning, the clerk pushes the money across the counter. The voice, though quiet, is emphatic. No, miss, no charge. The clerk tries, without success, to hide behind his book. As Eleanor pulls the coat on, she raises her eyebrows in question at Kells. Kells shrugs. Martin? Eleanor's confusion fades as they step out into the alley and make their way toward the street. Her hands begin to move about the pockets. Something unknots in her, as though she had been holding her breath for days. The coat is home, though the pockets are all empty. Or are they? There is something. Perhaps it has fallen into a bit of the lining? The object in the coat is forgotten as they pass from the shadow of the alley and into the bright afternoon sunlight. The coat is resplendent. Born anew, it now looks like stormy water in a northern sea. No longer the drab, grayish antique it had been. It now carries the hue she remembers it having when she donned it for the first time. Lordy Lou! Eleanor startles up a flock of pigeons from the bench where an elderly woman has been feeding them. It's like it was when it was new. Kells laughs. Martin directed you here. I would never question his taste in cleaners. You saw his dressing room. Eleanor snorts. I suppose you're right. He does have a thing for clothing, doesn't he? Sort of. Though I don't think he wears anything made in the last hundred years. I like what he wears, 
Eleanor flips up the collar of her long coat, becoming the very picture of offended royalty. She flicks a derisive hand at Kells as though dismissing her. I didn't say there was anything wrong with it. I just think he's old-fashioned. And I happen to like old-fashioned things. Kells leans against Eleanor, shattering her facade of judgmental propriety. The little juggler reaches around her waist and squeezes in a sideways hug as they walk. Eleanor pokes her in the ribs, playful. Is that why you like me? Maybe. Kells spins away from the tickling finger and scampers onto a bench. She strikes a pose and claps her hands. I'm hungry. Let's go get some food. All right. Eleanor holds out her arm. But this time, it's on me. Dinner. Drinks. Dancing. Off we go, then. The sun has set when they arrive at the small dance hall. As they walk down the steps from the street, the show is already in full swing. The room is long and deep, with a floor made of heavy oak planks, walls covered with hundreds of mirrors that reflect a thousand glittering sights from their depths. A bar runs down one side of the room, faced by a few high tables and chairs on the other. But most of the room is open and packed to the brim with people dancing. The crowd bounces and sways to the band on the stage, a roiling mass of accordion bellows, booming drums, and cacophonous brass. The exquisite cocktails that accompanied dinner have left them rosy-cheeked. They each find themselves ordering the lightest beer on tap. Kells beats Eleanor to paying by pulling a twenty-note out of her hair and slapping it on the bar. They knock the glasses together in rough Viking fashion and begin to drink them. Kells, feeling the urge to show off a bit, drains hers and slams the empty glass down on the bar. Eleanor has already stopped drinking after a healthy swig. She watches this demonstration with something that looks akin to pity. Before Kells can be hurt by her apparent judgment, Eleanor winks, drinks most of her remaining beer, and slams the glass down on the bar with a bit still sloshing in the bottom. Though Kells's protestations that she did not finish it cannot be heard over the band, her face is clear enough. Eleanor favors her with a wicked grin, whips off her coat, twirls it above her head, and slaps it down onto a bar stool. As she does this, her fingers work their peculiar magic upon the magician's workings in the coat, and by the time it hits the seat, it holds itself up. She moves the almost empty beer to the end of an oversized sleeve, now rolled down, and flicks up the collar. The whole thing now looks like nothing so much as a passed-out barfly clutching a near-empty beer. The bartender has been watching all of this with amusement. Nimble hands cease their creation of drinks just long enough to give them a smile. A raised thumb is rubbed along a tattooed cheek in a surreptitious gesture. Kells returns the motion, adding a small bow. Eleanor copies her. She's just about to ask Kells to dance, but find her companion is well ahead of her. She lets herself be pulled toward the band, and before she knows it, she is in the center of it all. The sounds are an almost physical thing one can feel breaking upon the skin like waves against a rocky headland. And then they are spinning around, bouncing through the rest of the crowd, clinging tight together, dancing and laughing. Martin had been invited, but begged off, claiming he wanted a night in, to himself. In point of fact, he is rather put off by music performances and clubs and dance halls. These spaces are too close, too intimate, full of easy movement and the lowered personal boundaries music brings. In such a place, there is too much chance of touching another person by accident. Touch is 
such a curious thing. We hardly pay attention to how much we communicate about ourselves with those around us. Even the slightest contact speaks so much. The brushing past of a stranger on a train. The jostling of a crowd at a concert. The first time new lovers hold hands. So much can pass through touch. You will have noticed from earlier incidents that Martin seems to have an aversion to being touched. This is not due to any particular dislike of other people, or even a specific mental peculiarity. Rather, it stems from a deep well of sadness somewhere in the heart of this melancholy bookkeeper. Much like the tattered prophet, he is only differentiated from you or I by that single inciting incident, a heartbreak so profound as to render him almost a wraith of his former self. Many years ago, as will happen, Martin fell in love. It was a connection of sudden profundity, a thing which blindsided the young bookseller. Disposed to be a tentative and careful man in the ways of love, Martin found himself swept along in what can only be called an adventure. It was the kind of love only a young person can feel, the sort of affection one thinks is one's own creation, a voyage of discovery. It is inconceivable to youth that any other has ever felt such a connection before. But happiness is so often a brief thing, snatched away too soon. While walking together through the city one day, Martin's companion tripped on the sidewalk and fell into the street and into the path of an oncoming trolley. The last thing Martin experienced before the impact was the sensation of the hand of his beloved gripping his. That last touch suddenly ripped away. Death was instant, though such a thing could scarce be called a mercy. Much is made of the supposed mercy of sudden death, as though the long, drawn-out period of goodbyes that is such a hand-in-hand companion of illness is worse. In truth, neither is preferable, just as no specific death is better than any other. All are a cessation of life, the end of a journey. But to the living one who experiences the loss, any death is horrible, especially one so pointless, as is all death. One might argue that to die in such a way, lacking in any grandeur of passion or sacrifice, is to fail the one thing all people keep hoping for themselves, that they are the heroes of a story, the protagonist of their own book. But here it is, a trip, a fall, an impact, an unsatisfying ending, an affront to Martin's literary sensibilities. This accident took the last person to hold Martin with affection, the last one to touch his face, hold his hand, or know his heart. It is, I think, out of some loyalty to this memory that Martin shirks all touch from others. And so it is that he is not here with Kells and Eleanor, dancing, holding, touching, along with a hundred strangers whirling around to the music. Time and thought slip away, carried along on the beat and the swell of the sound. By the time the music stops, it could have been years since it began, or only a moment. The room feels quiet compared to the surging umpa of the band mere moments before. People sit in groups or mill about on the dance floor, 
talking in hushed voices about the show and the talent of the band. Some speculate about how much longer the musicians will play after they have finished slaking their thirst and smoking their cigarettes. Eleanor gathers that this particular establishment will sometimes allow patrons to keep dancing well after closing time, a kind of speakeasy. They sit down on stools at the bar, cozy with the empty jacket. Eleanor orders them another round. They sit close together, hips and shoulders touching, letting the comfort of their silence speak for them. Out of the corner of her eye, Eleanor sees something in Kells' expression, a kind of maudlin wistfulness. When she turns to regard Kells, the look disappears, replaced by one of simple contentment. Ignoring the good sense to ignore it, Eleanor nudges Kells. What was that? Hmm? Kells blinks at her like someone who has just woken up. After a moment, she decides to share. Oh, I was just thinking about what I would do if I found real magic. Eleanor chuckles and makes a flourish with her hands. Her beer is full again. What, like this? Kells ignores the jape. No, I mean, you know, real magic, like a dragon or a flying broomstick. Lately, it's felt like something might be happening, you know? Something in the little juggler's tone warns Eleanor that the topic is deathly serious. She considers for a moment. The sudden outpouring of something doubtless held deep in Kelza's heart makes her shift. Uncomfortable. The conversation now feels more intimate than any they have had yet. Eleanor takes a deep breath before she says, You've dedicated your life to seeking wonder. You believe in magic. Not just a sense of wonder, but real magic. Kells nods and sips her beer, but does not disagree. Eleanor continues, And you're worried that if you really find it, something magical that is, it will disappoint you. It will break your heart. Again, a nod. Eleanor is talking faster now, thinking she has solved the puzzle. Now, here I am with so easy with you, with your friends, your life, and you're worried that I might not be real? A fine mist of beer sprays out of Kells's mouth. No, well, I mean, maybe, no. I was talking about the cat. Oh. Eleanor cannot tell if she's disappointed or relieved that Kells does not think her some sort of mystical being. They sit in silence until the drinks are gone. Kells orders them more, and they knock the glasses together without looking at each other. Deep into their third round, Kells says, There is something really weird about that cat. Eleanor's answer is lost as the band starts up again, filling the room with noise, color, and the happy motion of people lost in music. Oh my goodness. I am so glad that we are hopefully back on track and on schedule to get this finished. Uh, I'm hoping to actually have all the episodes of this recorded before I leave for Europe in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, Scotland, so look out for Accordion Fight Show there. And then uh, I'll be sort of all over Europe. If you are somewhere in Europe and you'd like a visit from a goofy accordion player, 
get in touch, I guess. Uh, yeah, again, so, uh, my apologies for this episode going up l- very late uh, for missing a couple of weeks, but one of the, I guess, joys of being a self-employed performance artist is that sometimes you have 40 gigs in one month, and it's great. <laughs> so, uh, you know, gotta, gotta pay them bills and, and uh, gotta feed the strangely. Speaking of feeding the strangely, I recommend that if you like this this podcast and you'd like to encourage this sort of thing to keep happening, that you head on over to parchemancier.com uh, or you can also head over to patreon.com slash strangely writes books. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at I am strangely and uh, yeah, you can email me at strangely writes books at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and uh yeah, I mean, you could just drop me a line with whatever's up and, you know, tell me what you've been up to. So anyway, thanks for listening. Hopefully we're back on schedule. And next week we'll be back with Chapter 15, Mice and Dust. Slaking their thirst and smoking their cigarettes. Smoking their cigarettes. Smoking their cigarettes and smoking their cig- Would you care for a cigarette? <laughs> a cigarette. Would you like some cigarettes? So from ever since I was a teenager, I've enjoyed a nice puff on a cigarette. Of course, uh, old cancer sticks. Brought to you by the makers of uh, infectious lung paint, lead-based toys. I don't know. It's, why do people still? Why is there still stock and trade? You know, everything they do to make cigarette cigarettes. So you know, we call them something else at home. I'm not going to say it just because it will only get a titter out of the homophobic and the 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 prurient. But uh, we, we, we call them the same thing the, the Russians call a bassoon, actually. That's quite a bit of a, a fun fact, as it were. Fun facts. Uh, what are some other fun facts? And, uh, you know, it's been several hours since I've had a beer. Perhaps I should go and search for another beverage to slake my thirst and accompany my cigarette. See, if there's only one cigarette, it's not that hard to say. It's when you have cigarettes. Oh, there it is. But then you're, then you're, then you're sort of... Get, it's getting a bit more posh, isn't it? You know, not to put a finer point on it, but if I really, really, absolutely, with deep conviction, lean into that, that S on cigarettes becomes something quite special. You know, I was corrected once that it's, n- it's actually pronounced glacier, which just sounds, frankly, terrible. I, you can tell I'm a bit punchy after an entire day in the studio and I just want to sod off down to the pub for a couple of pints. You know, there's a pub in my hometown. Uh, what hometown would that be, then? Well, 
down here in Fairhaven, Washington, which is part of Bellingham before it were annexed. I, I know what annexed means. I've had schooling. Not much mind. I dropped out after my third attempt at college, as we would say. But there's a noise pub, and they, they do this special light thing where you can give them a favor, and they give you a gold coin. And it were like the old days when you could say, Oi, barkeep, I'll have an ale. And then you just throw a single coin on the down there on the bar, and it were nice and civilized-like. None of this mucking about with paper. Oh. Right. Well, I best be off. Got to shoe me arse and fix me toy brighter and all the other antiquated stuff I like to do. Got to see about the missus.